I feel like it's the air to visualize the cinema. It's raging, it's primal, it's brutal. I feel like this shows you how lacking contemporary American cinema is in its eroticism, which is about unleashing a woman's power. Those are words from director Isabel Sandoval on Hiroshi Teshigahara's 1964 film, Woman in the Dunes. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film in the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and this is a special features episode, and these monthly bonus episodes are outside of the filmographies of the current director in focus. Special features came about because I want to talk to someone about a film either they love or I love, and hopefully we both love. So today's film in question is Women in the Dunes, and a quick synopsis of the film is, an entomologist on vacation is trapped by local villagers into living with a woman whose life task is shoveling sand for them. The film's tagline is, the most provocative picture ever made. Apologies in advance for mispronouncing anyone's name, but the film stars Eiji Okada as Nikki Jempe, Kyoko Kishada as the woman, it's written by Kobo Abe and Eiko Yoshida, cinematography by Hiroshi Sagawa, directed by Hiroshi Tishigahara, edited by Fusako Shuzi, and music by Toru Takibitsu. So today, for my special features episode, I have two guests with you. I have Seth Vargas and Ben Vargas. Seth, you'll probably recognize from my Agnes Varda series on the Banau. And Ben is a new arrival. We're going to see him again in a future episode, but I wanted to have him on a little bit earlier than our slated slot for this year. So thank you both for coming on today. I really appreciate it and talking to me about Woman in the Dance. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So Seth, I'm not going to make you reintroduce yourself. I know that you have a podcast, maybe friends podcast that I've been on. But Ben, I'm going to ask you, before I get into the the second question, what your relationship is to cinema? How is it that you got into films? Because I know you're also starting, or you have started your own podcast. If you want to talk about your relationship to the films that you love and the podcast. My family has always been really big into movies. I mean, we used to watch movies, I feel like almost every single day. There were certain ones that we would like kind of grasp onto and like I've probably seen Goonies a hundred times. I've probably seen Neverending Story a hundred times. Bloodsport was a big one when we were kids. <laughs> Seth wasn't old enough to remember that, but we literally used to watch that sometimes multiple times in a day. That's the Jean-Claude. <laughs> the Jean-Claude Van Damme, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen that. I still have not seen it. We used to do this thing when it wasn't wintertime. And in the movie, if you've seen it, it's called Kumite, which is like their fight. And we would each be a different character in from the movie. And then we would play out these battles, these fight scenes. So we were really into it. <laughs> it's a I little mean, embarrassing, fun. honestly. <laughs> I think that's fun. I think it's fun to have that, you know, as a child. So I probably started really getting into movies seriously when I was like 15, 16. I watched predominantly foreign stuff a lot of classics french films were probably my favorite also watched a lot of you know italian and german and polish and i didn't get into korean films and japanese films until i was further along in adulthood but now they're probably some of my favorites that's cool yeah i feel like europe is usually the gateway to 
the rest of the world because yeah. we talk about the European, the French, the Italian stuff more than we would Asian cinema. Do you want to talk about the podcast you're starting? Yeah, I think we're going to have different fan bases. <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> sure fine. there's a lot. Of, I'm not sure there's a lot of crossover. But um, yeah, I mean, we're predominantly going to be doing kind of obscure horror stuff from, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, you know, we will cover some modern stuff, probably not any new releases. It will be more on the lines of like cult classics, exploitation, horror, some like zany type of comedies, like the slapstick comedies from, you know, 70s and 80s, stuff like that. So, okay. Hey, I mean, people can like that stuff and like art house stuff too. Yeah. For the both of you, if you could recommend me and the listeners two to three films you've watched in the past few months that kind of stuck with you. They don't have to be the best movies. They're just ones that the first ones that come to your mind that you're like, you know what? I think other people should watch this. I'm going to give you three. Okay. Yeah. Real quick. Rapid fire. One just came out and I don't like a lot of new release films, but uh, I did watch bottoms in theaters. And I think that this will be a movie that this year will be remembered for. Honestly, it's so funny. And I I was pretty surprised at how much I loved it. I also recently caught up on The Holy Mountain, which okay. <laughs> was a great viewing experience and just kind of left my wife and I shocked, especially by the ending. Also recently, and this is going to sound crazy and I don't know, maybe it's not a good indication of what I like, but I watched the animated G.I. Joe film from 1987 and was blown away by that movie. It's really over the top. The character development and design is like to the nines. I, I, I sound crazy even mentioning it in the same recommendation as the holy mountain but if you haven't checked it out check it out it's a it, it's a fun little 80s cartoon real real wild i definitely haven't seen that but i've seen clips from it mm -hmm. but what did you well I, i'll look it up to see what you can watch it on the bottoms i haven't seen yet but i like emma's other film shiva baby yeah that was great. good but ben i'd like to hear your recommendations um couple of movies uh, Faces Places, the Varda documentary was like, I already loved her a lot, but seeing her as herself is, was just mm -hmm. like, I, I, I love her even more now. It's, which is hard to do, but it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. Uh, I also liked Baccarat. I think I'm saying that right. Mm. It's a horror movie from, uh, 2019. I believe it's Brazilian. I'm not 100% sure on that. That one really was probably one of the, my favorite horror movies I've seen in quite a while. I also watched Police Story for the first time. Seth had it on his podcast. And that was just, I mean, I love Jackie Chan, but that was like, I don't want to say peak Jackie Chan because I, I haven't seen everything, but I think it might be. It's great. I grew up with a lot of Jack Jackie Chan stuff because my mom loves martial arts movies. Like it's her go to. So it was Jackie Chan, like Jet Li. But I hadn't seen Police Story. I watched it like maybe four years ago for the first time because I realized it was also a Criterion release. And I was like, oh, yeah. I think maybe I kind of like Police Story too a bit more. But they're both very good. I haven't seen I've the heard, third one yet. I've heard that from some people. That the second one is actually better, but I haven't seen it yet. They're both good. They're basically the same thing. Heard of the back around i've seen the poster but i can't do modern horror i'm too much of a baby <laughs> it's pretty violent <laughs> really so how do you feel about timeless horror in a sand pit love it okay. i like 
<laughs> I like real horror stuff that's like could actually happen to you. That's why I love like Hanukkah stuff where I'm like, yeah, funny games. Those people could come into your house and murder you. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> do you think that you could be lowered into a sandpit and left there? No, no, only because and I was thinking about this halfway through. I was like, you know, what? this could really never happen to me because I don't leave my house. God. So <laughs> I would so have you to would be, be having a full menti be to be going into the desert. You would be the woman who has a man lowered into her pit. Absolutely. I would be yeah. the woman who's already okay. living there. Yeah. Uh, I would not be lured down ever. I'd be like, no, I'll die up here. Sorry. I'm good. Well, I think we're ready to get into Woman in the Dunes. Actually, before we get into some quick facts, this is a very first watch for me. It had been on my list for a very long time. Whoa. Like a very long time. Yeah. Ben is coming on for a later month, but I kind of wanted to have him on before. So I was creeping your letterbox and I saw it's in your top four. I was like, okay, that's been on my list. So I hear nothing but good things. So I reached out. This movie blew my mind. So if you want to briefly talk about the first time you watched it and your like initial thoughts on the first time you watched it. So the first time I watched it, I was absolutely blown away. I definitely had a different opinion about it from that watch to this watch. I was more mesmerized by, you know, the cinematography and kind of the the sexual side of it because it's very like erotic. There's only I think one scene with nudity and it's not even it's like a silhouette. It's not even like close up or anything. Mm-hmm. But it's very just like the tension between the two of them is just like the only thing I can compare it to is in the mood for love where it's like it's there you're like okay what's gonna happen next when are they gonna you know consummate this like tension but this time around i definitely had a different perspective but we can wait for that so i watched this for the first time last year and it was on ben's recommendation and i i don't think that we watched it together no i was doing a huge movie watch through new interview stuff last year and He kept saying, you know, Woman in the Dunes, you got to see it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. I don't know what service I watched on and what the description was, but I was just like, how could this be interesting? Mm -hmm. And it's a movie that surprises you at like almost every turn. And I just remember thinking like, okay, this is like um, A Man Escape. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a simple kind of prison escape movie, kind of like in horror, they call it Hellbilly, where... A person from the city is brought out to the sticks. It's kind of like a mixture of those things. But then it ends and you're just like, okay, I don't know what this is. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) But I know that it's genius and that it's amazing. And it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. I know that. Well, I would agree. Well, I'm going to quickly go through a little facts and then we can get into the movie because I think that's probably more interesting than the facts that I could scrape up. So uh, the director became the first Japanese, you know, directed to be nominated for an Oscar for -hmm. directing. Uh, It won the special jury prize at Cannes and earned two Oscar nominations. So best director and best foreign film. I think those nominations really show how incredible this film was because we weren't that far removed from concentration camps in the United States. And this was Mm -hmm. a Japanese director. So, I mean, the people who nominated this were alive when that happened. So, I mean, just from that standpoint alone, historically, it's pretty impressive that he was nominated. Yeah, it shows you, you know, how the Academy has evolved and what they used to actually pay attention to back in the day. Because I was reading that it was like a huge art house film 
and it was so popular that they basically couldn't ignore Mm -hmm. the film. This is one of Tarkovsky's 10 favorite films. Wow. And when I read that, I was like, that makes sense. I feel like he'd like this movie. Oh, I mean, obviously he did. (laughs) So, (laughs) and then another one, which I'm going to try and condense here because there's a lot of big words because it has to do with entomology. Oh, sure. (laughs) Which I don't know anything about. So the very first bug that you see at the beginning is often called like a doodle bug in North America. It ensnares its prey by digging out of a pit in loose sand. And when the Mm. prey falls in the pit, it's unable to get out and becomes food for that bug. I was wondering why, because I hadn't read anything about the film before I started it. So when it starts off with like him in the desert looking for these bugs and you see that bug scene, I was like, I don't know what this movie is going to be. I hope it's not like a gross head movie, but it's obviously just setting up mm-hmm. what this movie is about. Those are just some quick facts. I'm ready to get into the movie because I know there's a lot to speak about. One of the first points I want to talk about when you read about this film, it often gets compared to the the myth of Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. For anyone who might not be familiar with that, it's essentially a man who is condemned by the gods to spend eternity rolling a boulder to the top of a hill, and it just rolls back down. He has to keep doing it over and over again. So we see that comparison in this film. This film is adapted from a book. I see the comparison, and you know, it's the constant need to escape and the sand being something you cannot really climb. How do you guys feel about utilizing that story? to kind of guide his journey in the dunes and the eventual, which we'll get to the end, but him trying to escape because that's what his his goal is the entire time is just trying to get home. It's a fairly comparable, I think the sand is, you know, this oppressive thing. And it, it's really one of like one of the main characters of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's something that they can't escape. Throughout the film, there's constant imagery of, you know, the sand on their bodies and, you know, the sand inside and the sand falling and everything they do is about the sand. I mean, you know, they have to cover the water, they have to cover their table when they eat. And it's like this constant impending doom, they just literally can't escape. So I I think it's definitely a good comparison between the two. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, anything that you do with the sand makes the sand move. And so Mm -hmm. there's really no like testing of anything. You see him just vaulting up, (laughs) like over and over. And it only makes the problem worse. And so then you have to remove more sand and you have to wait a few more days. And yeah, I definitely see Sisyphus this time around. And this really helps me kind of understand some of the woman of her like motivations or just like mindset was the allegory of the cave from Plato. And, you know, in that you have these folks who their whole life they've been chained to the wall of a cave and they see shadows on the wall in front of them. That's like the form of objects, but they don't understand the fullness of what those things are. And if you were to take someone from that cave and show them like, oh, this is what a tree is, they like wouldn't even believe you. You know, they'd be like, well, no, I know what a tree looks like. (laughs) It Uh doesn't look like this thing. They're so entrenched in the way of thinking that they've been brought up in that they just can't comprehend something else. For her to just kind of like laugh off the idea of ever leaving and also like, well, if I did leave and went to the big city, what would I even do? He's literally talking about like freedom and she just she has no concept of what that is. Yeah, I see both of those like for him it's it's like quicksand that he has to kind of stop struggling against 
in order to free like his mind in order you know like he mm-hmm. he doesn't leave we can kind of assume from the final shots of the missing persons report that he just never mm-hmm. does leave but once he stops struggling and once he just kind of like gets with the program then he's found I don't think true happiness. I think this is a horror movie. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty horrifying story. But he stops struggling against the sand by giving in. I agree. I think this is a film where at the beginning, even before he goes into the dune, he's escaping from something, right? Yeah. He's escaping from the city. And it's a thing for all of us who live in this sort of city of being like, oh, I'm going to escape to the countryside. Or I'm going to escape to wherever is the countryside and wherever you're from to get away and you live a more simple life, essentially, mm-hmm. not realizing that it's obviously not simple because this is not a man. He's he's a scholar, right? He's probably spent years of his life in school and not because you're a scholar. You don't know how to do physical work, but he clearly has never had to do physical labor. He's put into the situation where he's like, oh, this is now I'm trying to escape from this. So it just his whole life is a constant escape. I was going to read a quick quote from Roger Ebert, actually, on the photography of the sand, because the sand obviously is basically in every single scene in this movie. And there's other films that we all probably know that have a huge element of sand. This is probably the most beautiful I've seen sand in a film. Mm. And this is in black and white. I'll read what he has to say about it. So he says, there has never been sand photography like this. No, not even in Lawrence of Arabia. And by anchoring the story so firmly in this tangible physical reality, the cinematographer Hiroshi Sagawa helps the director pull off the difficult feat of telling a parable as if it's really happening. I immediately noticed how beautiful the sand looked. I don't know. It just looked so kind of like glistening in this. And I've seen in Lawrence of Arabia as seeing Dune. The sand in those films do not look as alluring as it does in this film. And I think it's alluring for a specific reason, because he's kind of being sucked in to this world, whether he wants it or not. How do you feel about Ebert's thoughts on, you know, the sand in the film and your own thoughts on the way the sand is photographed? I think they use I think they definitely use time lapse in this because I see the sand almost as water in this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which, you know, water is possibly the most dangerous force in the world. I mean, once water gets going, you it's very hard to stop it and it can do a lot of damage. And, and so I think in a way, I look at the water, you know, the comparison to water and sand is like this force is something that's literally destroying his life you know what i mean like mm-hmm. he can't get away he can't get away from it it's like he's drowning i haven't seen anything where the sand is as beautiful as it is beautiful and yet deadly at the same time mm-hmm. yeah the sand is uh i was gonna say exactly what ben said it looks like water mm-hmm. towards the beginning there's even a shot of him sitting in a boat in the middle of the desert yeah. <laughs> and there's this funny thing where you know, the woman is explaining to him how the sand makes everything rot. And he's like, that's not how things work. And she's like, oh, that's how they work here. And we know he pulls moisture from the the sand at the end of the Mm -hmm. film. Even some of the overlaid shots, the way that they make the sand move looks like waves. Mm -hmm. And so it, it gives the feeling that this house in the pit is almost like an island, you know, that they're sequestered on and you know, the ships come and drop off supplies, but they're very much isolated. Mm -hmm. 
where normally, you know, if you had a movie about the woods or the mountains or even the desert, you would have your protagonists moving through it. Like they'd be, they would leave, they would walk, they would go on a journey. Mm-hmm. So to be stranded in the middle of just earth definitely gives you a lot of feelings of water. Well, do we want to talk about what you said in terms of it being kind of an island that they're on and his escape? Because he has two. We can maybe save the very last one till later on in the discussion. But the first time he does manage to escape, he's been kind of plotting this where yep. in my mind, he's obviously pretending to be interested in her and forming a relationship a physical relationship with this woman so he earns her trust to be like okay maybe he's accepted his fate he will stay here meanwhile he's building tools to get out he gets out and he does run he goes on the run but is it it's a desert right he doesn't know what direction at this point he's so frazzled about getting out of this place that anyone would just run in any direction they're like i'm trying to get to somewhere that looks like you know, civilization. He eventually gets caught when he gets, you know, stuck in the quicksand and gets pulled back. The villagers bring him right back. I guess how you feel about him escaping one hole of sand into another. And that's (laughs) the reason why he's thrown back (laughs) into the situation. I mean, I think it just perpetuates the nightmare that he's in. He's, he's like Groundhog's Day, you know, every day it's like, oh, I'm back where I started. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's no, there's literally no escape. He is stuck. And the quicksand, I think is just points that out, you know, it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is my fate. Like I, I escaped and I'm still stuck in the sand. I, I've been thinking a lot about it since we, you know, since you asked me to come on and without any hyperbole, I think this is maybe, if not the best, one of the best like horror films that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Because wow. <laughs> for me, this is a literal nightmare. Yes. I hate the beach. I hate sand. um the thought of having sand consume me in every possible way is like a literal hell for me yeah this is you know there's times where and i feel like i watched part of it with seth i said you know this the intensity of these some of these scenes is like wages of fear Mm-hmm. where you're just like, my heart is in my throat. I feel like I'm having a panic attack. And you're just like, this guy is just, he's completely, he has no, tr- like no hope. There's no hope. I mean, as a side note to what you were saying, I also hate the beach and the sand. And the whole time I was like, man, sand's getting in their water and their food. And I could just taste the sand as they were eating. I was like, Ugh. But I also just like, for me, as someone who's not a huge fan of horror, I would say that, but I do like things that disturb me. So I don't like to be scared. I like to be disturbed by things that could actually happen to people. And those are my favorite type of films. So I think to me, this is very much a horror film. And it's one of the best because you're just like, you know, Seth's asked at the top, do you think you'd be in the situation? But this could translate to any other life situation that you might find yourself in. Seth, how do you feel about the escape failure? 
Yeah. So in any story, the story isn't over as long as there's hope. Mm -hmm. And that's where our story ends this time when we've lost all hope for him ever leaving. And so it's good. You know that he's going to get caught. I mean, I don't know about you, but yeah. when I saw how much time is left, I was like, well, I don't think he gets away at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a really common you know, trope in horror movies that, oh, they escaped and oh, they flagged a car down. Oh, but the people in the car are in on it or the people in the car in the car are the people that they're running away from. Shout out to Goonies. Funny games, too. <laughs> funny games. <laughs> Which yeah. I always talk about <laughs> funny games. So depending on which movie you're watching, the false escape can, you know, suck you back in. But then you feel even more relieved when they actually escape. This is not that type of movie. And so it just kind of helps to dig you even further down than you thought you could go emotionally. I think that's why it's a film that people talk about and the people who have seen it, it's stuck with them because it's just the horror of living your everyday life and his life's not in any danger other than the fact that he just doesn't want to be there obviously because why mm -hmm. would you want to be and then also kind of the horror of being like why did she want to be here right and why is she here how long has she been here did she grow up here type of deal i wanted to shift just to the cinematography it's just it's hard not to be amazed by the way this film looks let alone the story and I want to talk about the way that the two lead characters are shot. Because I noticed a lot of the time, you kind of see them through things. Like you would see them through a window or like yeah. wood slats or blinds. There's a quick quote I'll read from Midnight Eye. This is filmed in high contrast monochrome with large portions of the screen plunged into complete darkness. Each shot is formally composed, often to the point of pure abstraction. I find we're actively being put on the outside. Like we are not in there with them. We're looking at them from the outside the same way the villagers are. We are placed as outsiders peering into kind of their sort of like a bell jar situation. They're stuck in this and we're looking at them mm. and seeing if they can escape this jar that has no escape other than us lifting the glass. So how do you feel about the way they're shot and the fact that we're never on the inside with them, we're always on the outside? I think there's a big parallel between what he does, what he came there to do, and yeah. his current mm -hmm. situation. Because, you know, you see the bugs digging into the dirt and him like kind of pulling them back out. Also, there is a scene where he has a bug in a tube like a plastic tube that's closed and the bug's trying to get out and he kind of like tilts mm -hmm. it. The bug is like struggling to not fall to the bottom, but you know that there's like no hope. And so I think that connection mm -hmm. is definitely intentional. And I think why he, why the author of the book used an entomologist because, you know, I don't want to get like all political and I'm not like a PETA person or anything like that. But there's definitely a lot of people who would see what he does as like torture and, you know, he's putting the pin through them. And, mm -hmm. you know, we look at it as like, oh, they're just bugs, but it's also a living thing. And so that parallel, I feel like is very intentional and very deep. And it really could, you could talk about just that for an hour let alone you know what I yeah mean? so like we could really talk about just him being an, an entomologist for that could be its own separate episode because there's so much to say about that i think he brought up some really great points as far as him being an entomologist 
and all of the shots coming from outside. I didn't notice those shots till you mentioned it. I didn't see like a through line there, but I did know he knows that it's happening to him, but there's a moment he kind of still feels like he has the upper hand. He's thinking like, maybe I'll write about this one day as he's pinning the insect to the little tray. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, look at what you're doing. Like be in the moment that you are in, like realize like what you're doing to these insects is literally like what's happening to you. And yeah. even at the end, this is something that doesn't need to happen today. I could go tomorrow or I could go. And he doesn't see his situation for what it is. And, you know, the expression that's used is like the, the frog in the pot. Like he doesn't realize how bad it's getting and he doesn't realize how far gone from himself that he is and so yeah i think like in in a lot of ways he is still the observer and he's not fully connected to like what's happening in the pit and there's a real strange scene which i'm sure you have on there to talk about and it's the scene that perplexed me the most both the first time and second time watching through it which is when all of the villagers show up and say hey Mm -hmm. We'll let you see the ocean if you uh, have sex in front of all of us. Well, we were getting that was my next point. So <laughs> you're on top of it. And there's a there's just a real strange new layer of voyeurism that's added to it. Yeah, it makes you feel strange as the audience, and I think it's saying a little bit about the audience. But when he first meets the villagers, they're not wearing masks. They're just talking to him. They're they're telling him there's a village nearby. They're telling mm-hmm. him that he's going to go down into this hole. Like nothing is really hidden as they're stealing this guy's life from him. They're very open about it. And it's very much like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. But when they come back and then want him to perpetrate violence against her, that's when they're now hiding. And they're all there, including like children. And they shine this spotlight on him. <laughs> Yeah. Like out of nowhere. And it's like getting him to perform for them so that he can get what he wants. And in that way, it really reminded me of a Serbian film. And, you know, this is a this is a village government. The lengths that a government will go to and what they will kind of, you know, tease you with or what they're holding over you in order to get you to perpetrate violence for them. And at that point, that's when it becomes kind of a nameless, faceless mob we keep seeing the same three guys over and over and they just kind of like peek in and mm-hmm. like <laughs> 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 and so he you know unfortunately he does not remain a victim at this point he now becomes part of the system and he becomes mm-hmm. the victimizer and so mm-hmm. at the end of this film we're not looking at the same person that we started with and we feel bad for him, of course, but we've lost the same level of like, oh, man, you got to get out of there. Oh, man, you got to get out of there that we once had. And, you know, you can blame it on what they've put him through. I mean, this is torture, like bringing the sand back to water. Constant dripping water is literally a form of torture and the constant mm-hmm. dripping of the sand that's going to have a toll on you. And when someone is tortured, they become a different person. Like they're reduced down to something that they were not before. Very much. I'll get into that. So I I did want to talk about the sexual dynamics between them. Yeah. I mean, I watched this on Criterion and the way the description of it kind of makes it seem like it's an erotic thriller. And I guess you can view it that way. When I was watching this, I was like, this is not an erotic thriller to me. This is 
something else. There's eroticism in it or the sex. I don't know if I would call it erotic. So I just thought it was, I don't know what I thought it was. I didn't think, I didn't know anything about him getting trapped down there. I just thought it was two people on a getaway having sex in the sand. <laughs> like Zabriskie <laughs> point, essentially. And I was like, uh, this is not that. The sexual dynamics between them, you feel it right away in the sense of her. So when he first gets there and he starts taking off his gear, he's taking off the extra layers because he's warm. There's a shot of her and she's kind of surrounded by darkness. And you can see that she's enamored by him as a, either as a man, as a body or him specifically. At that point, you don't really know. You just figure she lives alone. She hasn't seen a man in a while and she's turned on by this. Then you get... The fact that, you know, he goes to sleep, he wakes up, he sees her nude, and she's kind of like covered in a thin layer of sand. And he's kind of shocked. He's like, why would she be sleeping in the nude with the random man sleeping there? And he's trying to wake her up to be like, okay, I'm going to go now. Thanks for dinner last night <laughs> type of deal. Then he figures that he's trapped. And then you get the scene where they're kind of like touching each other. And then you can feel, okay, there's some sort of sexual tension. I always read it, even during that scene, as he is just doing this as a way to get out. I don't know how you read it. If you felt that at some point he actually wants to sleep with this woman, he's attracted to her, or that he's immediately off the bat trying to use this as a way to get out. That's how I read it. So in the very beginning, when the villagers take him to her house and they're yelling down and they're like, Hey, old hag, like, you know? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. he gets down there and there's a scene where he looks at her immediately. His face changes and he's like shocked because he's expecting, you know, probably some old lady and some old nice lady who's going to let him stay in her house for the night. And then you also see her look at him. So I definitely think that there is attraction on both sides. Yes, he does use that as like his way of like trying to get away. But I definitely think that there's some type of like connection between the two of them. That's fair. I really think that this movie is one of like the best examples of Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he, well, we don't have to talk about it till the end. But, you know, you fight and you fight and you fight. But then there's also, I think somewhere in his mind there's also like the simplicity of it where it's like you know his life back in the big city is not great and Mm -hmm. yes he uses that as a way to escape but i also i definitely think that there's some something going on there ben brought up a great point when we rewatched this the other night which is the possibility that the first time that they have sex with each other doesn't happen and i hadn't thought about it before but you know he basically was saying They wake up in completely separate rooms. And before Mm -hmm. it happens, they're both extremely dehydrated. And the guy drinks a bunch of alcohol. (laughs) It's a very unsexy sex scene. It's very, very strange. I I really had never thought about it like that. But I I I think it's possible. I hadn't thought of that. That does make sense. Because that's what I'm saying. It's like there are sex scenes in this film. But I don't find it, at least to me, I don't find it necessarily sexy. It's kind of like two desperate people who are clinging on to each other as opposed to like a lust. That is a kind of underlying thing. It's it's weird that this film is often associated with those scenes, at least from when you kind of read about it briefly. They always talk about how it's erotic when I think it's so much more than that, especially when we're leading up to the scene that we talked about briefly before of the village people asking or compromising, being like, you can go see the sea if you 
essentially raped this woman in front of us. And he says to her, okay, why not? Just let's just do it. And she says, well, we're not perverts. And he says, well, we're already living like animals anyway. So he just views her as kind of an animal to be taken Mm -hmm. advantage of. And he's just forcing her and he's pulling her out. And that scene, I don't even think you had to be a woman to just be kind of mortified at like, okay, what's happening? And you're like holding your breath and you're hoping this is not going to actually happen, even just for the actual act, just that's mortifying. And then at some point he says, let's just pretend. Yes. And she just is saying no. And you're like, I don't know, my heart broke for her when she's just so upset saying you idiot to him and he eventually does give up. He's so selfish that they're only offering him something, right? They're not offering her anything out of this. It's only him who can go see the sea. As we said, this is where your, you know, your thoughts of him change from being like, I feel totally bad for this guy to being like, oh, well, this guy is the dickhead, but he's also now being pushed so far into his entrapment that his mindset is changing. Or did he always have this in him type of deal? So how do you feel about that shift? And then you kind of have the ritual happening at the top with the mass and the music and it's like intense. We're opening the second chapter to the film. Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's, you can almost equate it to people who go to the zoo. They will actually schedule like, you know, hey, the pandas are going to mate and everybody goes and watches it. And it's like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, and it's like, they're just on display for the pleasure of the villagers. You know, they're, again, it's that voyeuristic, you know, we're all watching their misery, which this has like some connections to a lot of like the Palma films, because the Palma will a lot of times make us the voyeur where we're mm-hmm. we're watching and we're almost culpable because we're watching it, you know, like we know we shouldn't be watching this, but we're like almost forced to watch it. So, I mean, yeah, it's a horrifying, it's a horrifying scene. I mean, the masks are scary. And then there's like, I didn't notice it until the third time I watched it, but there's like a scene where I think it's supposed to be one of the drummers, but the mm-hmm. way the camera is shooting him, it almost looks like he's like masturbating. If you, mm. the camera's literally like shaking, like he's shaking and it's like, oh, okay. So like, this is just, these people are just sick, you know? And yeah, it's a very terrifying scene. <laughs> Not fun to watch. No. It feels very much like a hazing ritual for him. You know, in the States, anytime we see masked figures and flames, we're going to think of the Ku Klux Klan. There's like a crowd madness that kind of takes over. Mm -hmm. And we know like when that happens, people do like crazy things and they're trying to draw them in. And it is so sad for her because one of the reasons that she stays there beyond like not knowing what she would do in the real world is Mm because her family is buried there. You know, her husband and her child are buried there. And to her, at no point is she not accepting of him joining her in this life. Like when when they wake up, she's just like, yeah, this is what we do. And here, you know, grab a shovel. And Mm -hmm. she's showing him the beadwork thing that she's doing to earn extra money. And for the most part, she's completely happy. Mm -hmm. She has a companion now and she's totally willing to bring him into her normal life. What is normal to her? He is the one who's resisting it in that scene. Even though she's part of the villagers, she says, she's like, well, we're not perverts. And this, you know, that's not what this relationship is. You know, she thinks that she has basically like a new husband for him to betray her on that is so sad. Like, it's really, really sad because she thinks, you know, my life is going to go back to normal now. 
and yeah. he ruins it by forcing her out and trying to rape her. It also reminded me of the, there's a scene where he asks her how many other men had there been before me in yeah. his position. And she names off a few. I don't know if I missed it. You don't really kind of get where what happened to them. Did they escape? Did they die or whatnot? I know she said some of them are still there. Some of the younger people that got yeah. captured essentially are still in other houses. For me, I was wondering, I'm like, did she strike a deal with the village people to be like the next man that comes? Okay, he's coming to me. Or was it just sort of they assign people to whoever they get? How you feel that works out because he obviously wasn't the first. And what happened to those other men? They don't really specifically talk about that. But I, I, I mean, my guess is that they maybe share. She had him for a while. And so they send him to somebody else's house who doesn't have a companion because they also talk about when you have a man you get like extra rations mm-hmm. do you remember that part of the movie yeah yeah so maybe it's some type of you get them for six months and then you know your neighbor gets them for six who i i'm not really sure yeah. um it does feel in a way some like connection to like cults too where it's like they're living this bizarro life but for them it's just completely normal and so for an outsider it's like wait this is your this is what you do every day and i will say there's a part of me that this is in a way it's not that it's idyllic but it's it's kind of attractive like you know at night you get up and you shovel and then the rest of the day you just kind of hang out and chill and eat food and if you had a companion like i mean you know it's it wouldn't be the worst life in my opinion outside of the the crazy villagers but <laughs> yeah well that's exactly that i think it's the type i think it's it's playing on the fact that there are people who do that who go away on like a retreat of some sorts to escape from their city lives because the city life is overwhelming them and they think that going in the middle of nowhere is going to be better for them for their mental health or physical health because it's so different but when you're faced with that every day, then you either realize, oh, this is for me or it's not, right? Some people can live mm-hmm. like that and some people cannot. He obviously felt at the beginning that he couldn't and he eventually does. I, I think them mentioning that they've got other people is just another nail in the coffin of our hope because it's mm-hmm. proving that they have a system in place that works. Like if they had said something like, oh, well, this is the first time we've ever done this and we don't really know what we're doing. No, nope. yeah. They know how to trap him. They're not worried about it. They get him down in the hole and then he's stuck there. And he knows this has happened over and over and over again. Which again ties it back to what we were talking about at the top about, you know, Sisyphus. So just mm-hmm. it's like a never ending cycle that just will continue even past, even past clearly if we're talking about the ending here quickly of her being carted up. We don't see what happens to her. Do we know if she comes back or whatnot? He yep. stays on and who says that they're not going to trap, say, a woman for him and just continue yep. that cycle. Before we talk about the ending, though, I did want to quickly talk about the score of this film. Amazing. Because it blew my mind. And I will say quickly that it reminded me right off the bat of, well, that didn't remind me, but I just was like, okay, there's no way that. Johnny Greenwood wasn't inspired by this when he was making Therapy Blood because it has that kind of grating strings going on. And it just 
right off the bat, you get it and you're like, okay, now I kind of know what I'm in for, but not fully. And anytime it does show up, it's at the right moments. How you feel about the score of this film and how it works? I'm not typically a score guy. One of my favorite theater experiences was No Country for Old Men mm-hmm. and the lack of music. In fact, I don't think there's any music at all. I think there's zero score. And I find that to be very haunting, the lack of music, because in film, music is, you know, set up for cues like, okay, you're watching a horror movie and the the music gets creepy. Okay, we know something bad's going to happen, right? And so when you take that away, there's no guide. So it's just like your imagination, which to me is always worse, the imagination. Mm -hmm. This movie, I mean, this score is so perfect. After hearing about, you know, the director getting nominated and Best Foreign Film, the fact that the score wasn't nominated, which maybe back then they didn't do those, but I'm pretty sure they did, right? Like Best Original Music and stuff? Pretty sure they did. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that this didn't get nominated is insane to me because it's one of the most effective scores of really any movie that I can think of. I agree. Yeah, it's fantastic. And a lot of the times it comes after the surprise, Mm -hmm. like, like as a punctuation mark to something that has already happened which isn't totally unique to this film, but it just keeps getting you over and over. Like as I was rewatching, I was like, ah, they got me. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 fantastic. And if you had any, you know, second guesses about like what type of film you're watching, the score makes it very clear what you're watching. And real quick note about the beginning, the movie starts out with the opening credits and we hear the sounds of the city. Mm-hmm. And then we also see all of these different maps, like topographical ma- maps, city maps. And he mm-hmm. has this whole speech about the different forms that are used to identify us. And he's like, licenses. And he goes all the way down. He names every possible form of documentation that is used to like document a person, right? And I think he says something like, did I think of all of them? And then later on in the film, he lists off all of the branches of government that will come looking for him. And all of those things fail. Nobody Mm -hmm. cares. And the way that the film ends, basically back in the city with this form, the form that defines his life and what his life is, is missing for seven years. And so it's like he has slipped into, for lack of a better term, a pit of despair that is just off the map and off the radar. And it is a little surreal. You know, this film, one of the things that I saw was like, you know, they filmed it in a real place, but this could never really happen the way that it does happen. Just like the angles of the walls are way too steep for sand to be piled up like that um the actual walls were built out of the actual walls were like built with like sand plastered to them and then they would pour sand Mm -hmm. down them so it's a little surreal in that way it's a little bit like a parable it's a little bit like a fable where we know that like a house made of gingerbread or an old woman couldn't actually live in a shoe but we have that like odd setting to kind of like displace us and then the story can tell us what it wants to tell us the sound i just feel like the sound kind of helps guide you subconsciously a little bit through that journey for him i i agree and i i do like that you said that it happens after kind of like the shock factor which usually you would kind of have it happening at the same time or just before it to kind of amp you up for it but now the score is great i was like well halloween's coming up maybe i could play it as the kids come to the door right after they leave just you want to be the woman in the dunes uh i might i might that might be my halloween costume <laughs> well i think we're naturally 
getting to the end of the film. But before that, I just wanted to ask you guys, is there anything that you wanted to bring up that we haven't covered before we get into kind of how we feel about his final escape? And I mean, I could talk about this movie for another three hours, but yeah, I know. I yeah. feel like we've gotten the 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 majority of the the big the stuff. Gist. So. The yeah. gist. The, yeah. The only note that I had is about just about the family relationship and like mm-hmm. how we watching this film will say she's crazy. Like she's crazy for yeah. going along with this and for thinking that this is good. She says that the village leaders are good to her and that the places that they sell the sand to that they're good to them. She's happy yeah. where she is. Again, like we think, oh, that's so crazy. But how many people live where they live because that's where their family came from? Mm-hmm. You know, like they're miserable there. They're working a job that's literally I work to pay for where I sleep so that I can wake up to go to work. And we are fine with that. And, you know, if you ask someone like, oh, where are you from? They're like, well, I live around here. Why? Like, well, my family's here. We just accept it. But in her case, it's like to this extreme that seems crazy. But I think we're all kind of crazy for not trying to and again like to bring it back to like plato's cave it's like we don't even know what we're missing out on and when someone presents us with freedom like through ignorance and being repressed by the government and through torture we're even skeptical of freedom yeah yeah so if you've been looking for a sign to move out of your hometown this is it dear (laughs) listener yeah i'm ready to talk about the ending we've kind of talked about what happens so she's taken up Immediately, I don't know if it was just as a woman, if you kind of knew what was happening to her, I kind of figured it was like a pregnancy gone wrong. I was like, how has she not gotten pregnant yet? Yeah. I knew that there was something gone wrong. And so they take her out. She's like moaning, no, no, because she doesn't want to leave. The ladder is left down for him. He kind of tugs on it to make sure this is real, that they're not, you know, messing with him. And he climbs up. I think the look on his face and the actor does such a great job. Like yeah. both both the actors do such a great job. I know we haven't really talked about the acting as much, but he does a great job of there's a look in his face where I'm like, I don't think this man wants to leave. Even when he's climbing up those stairs, he's so hesitant. And so he kind of looks and then he goes to the sea and you're like, okay, what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden it cuts back to him being like, I got to check on my water pit, you know, that I'm building. And it leaves it up to the audience. And I'm sure that the book does as well to be like, you know, has this man gone fully kind of insane? Has he accepted his fate? Does he want to be there? Is he going to eventually escape? Or is this just going to be his life and he's going to continue the cycle? How do you guys feel about that? Because it is open to interpretation. I think the water, it brings him some type of like accomplishment that he maybe feel he never was able to achieve in his everyday life in the city. So I I think part of it is like, he's like, oh, I'm not completely helpless. I can do something that's going to better my life. And again, you know, the Stockholm syndrome thing of like, it becomes romantic in a way, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm not dealing with the hustle and bustle and my job that I probably don't love. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I would have made that decision. But I can see from his standpoint, while, you know, maybe it's that he has gone a little bit insane, but I also think there's probably some type of like romantic feeling that he has for that at this point, you know? I think that's a great point. I think the romanticism of his escape, especially if you're from a city, you live in a city, is 
really prevalent. I think not to keep bringing it back to the pandemic, but I know a lot of people were leaving cities because they couldn't afford to live there during the pandemic and going back to either their hometowns or to further out. And then you see them coming back because they're like, oh, I've never grown up on a farm. I don't know how to deal with the farm. I don't know this farm life. And it's like, as someone who's from a small town, I know that. But occasionally I'll meet someone. I'm like, you have never lived outside of the city. You've never lived outside of a place that didn't have public transportation. You've never lived in a place where you needed to drive everywhere. So you can romanticize a place that's so far removed from you, not realizing that doesn't mean that your life's going to be easier. I think from the beginning, he is very enamored with making a name for himself. And Mm -hmm seemingly it's in an innocent way catching bugs but what happens to him his first day well not his first day but you know day one he's so enamored with catching these bugs that he misses the last bus home Mm -hmm. in the desert that's not a light thing that's not like oh i missed the last train and you know i'll just wander around the city or hang out in a pizza shop all night he's already clueless to the danger that he is in because he's so obsessed with some kind of recognition he says like Maybe they'll put my name in a book. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) And at the end of the movie, he's in the same he's in the same spot. He finally feels like, oh, I do have a hand up on this situation. Oh, I am kind of in control and I can leave any time I want. Really? Like I could leave tomorrow. I could leave. I've done it before. Look, they were careless and left the ladder here now. I mean, I do I need to leave right now? I don't need to leave. My water thing is just starting to work. Mm-hmm. And he says, he's like, eventually, maybe I will tell the other villagers. And so the desire to be a big fish in a little pond just kind of transfers from one pond to another for him. And I think it's a really great warning for us to check our motivation on like why we're doing what we're doing. And if we're kind of blind to the dangers that are around us, it's a real it's a real tragic film that he doesn't really have an arc that goes up. It's just an arc that kind of dips way down and then he comes yeah. back to exactly where he was, just in a much smaller prison than his you know dead-end teaching job. There's a real darkness there. This movie ends, and I think this is the kind of film like Paris, Texas, like Jean Dielman, where you say, oh, I'm going to watch movies differently now because I'm kind of seeing what movies can do in a way that I didn't know they could do before. <laughs> yep, I feel that. There, there. Speaking of like movies that change your life and your perspective, there's a documentary called Working Man's Death, which okay. if you haven't seen it, I highly, mm-hmm. highly, highly recommend it. I watched that movie probably 20 years ago. I, I watched it when it came out, basically. And it has impacted me to this day. I still think about it at least once a year. Mm. You know, people are always like, well, why do you watch such depressing movies? Why do you watch sad movies? Why do you watch movies that are terrible? And I think the reason why I like it is because it gives you perspective. I think one of the most important things in life is perspective because it's very yeah. easy to get down. It's very easy to say, I'm a loser. You know, my life is terrible. But if you have perspective and you realize, oh, I'm not trapped in a sand pit or my job isn't like, you know, crawling into a mine to try and find like some mineral. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like, oh, my life is actually pretty good. 
And I think when you watch films that are only for escapism, it just perpetuates that my life is not good enough. You know, the woman finds like, you know, the super hot guy and her life is great. And it's like, oh, well, I don't have that. And so it just like kind of it just increases that where Mm -hmm. when you watch something bad or depressing or sad, it's like, oh, my life's actually not that bad in in, in comparison. And so I think movies like this, it's just adds to that level of like, you know, perspective where it's like, oh, okay. I don't have to dig sand every night. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's not like something that's not natural in a sense, like it's not creating a story that's so horrible that you can never imagine this happening to someone. It's like, this could happen to someone. Mm-hmm. Same with like Lars von Trier movies where you would, yeah. I would not want to live in any of those movies, but there, those things could happen to people probably have happened to people. And that's why I enjoy watching those films. As you said, Ben, just to put things into perspective, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I'm not living in breaking the waves. So if I could, <laughs> you know, not hate my life for today. <laughs> Dancer in the dark. I would yeah. love to live in breaking the waves. Maybe in the Scottish countryside, but not around those people. Sure. That's fair. I do have a funny um thing that I thought of. I yeah. am very much against remakes of great films, but the main character in this, he he's very attractive, I think. Yeah, um, he is. And he actually reminds me of a Japanese version of Pedro Pascal. There are some scenes where you're like looking at him, you're like, oh, that looks kind of like Pedro Pascal. So I was thinking if I would love to see a remake of this, but with Pedro Pascal as the main character. I would would (laughs) accept it if it was him. Right. Very much. I was thinking about that when I was watching this. I was like, I'm surprised no one's tried to remake this film. And then I was thinking about it. I hope they don't. But if it was with the right cast, because this is very much an actor driven, although the visuals obviously are very strong. If this movie was around today, people would, I think, like fall in love with this guy. Yeah. Like the the, the terms that they would use, they would call him like a daddy. You know what I mean? Like he's mm-hmm. he's very attractive in like a very attainable way. He's not like mm-hmm. a Cary Grant where it's like, yeah. you know, he's like this unattainable beauty, but he's just like an everyday dude. But he's our main actor was also in Hiroshima, Monamu. And that's where I recognized him. I was like, why do I recognize this guy? Because he's obviously really attractive then. So he's obviously like must have been like some sort of maybe heartthrobs, not the base word for him in japan at the time but he was a very attractive man and that's why you could like have him in this role it would be very believable that she would immediately be like yeah you know not feel threatened by him be attracted by this man because he's an attractive guy i would like to move on to the very last segment of the the show which is end credit and for this i will just ask the double bill question so if you're creating a double bill either for yourself or other people film would you pair this film with if you're presenting it to someone and why i really struggled with this one because i because i truly haven't seen anything like it i think that's Mm -hmm. why it has stayed near the top of my list for so long because there really isn't anything like it in my opinion but my initial thought was uh, Straw Dogs by Peckinpah with Dustin Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Um, Seth had brought up, you know, the whole Hellbilly, you know, Deliverance and films like that. And mm-hmm. it definitely has that vibe just in like, you know, I don't know if they have those kind of movies in Japanese culture, but so it, the Straw Dogs, um, Misery, you know, even though it's not the same, it still has that like, mm-hmm. he's just there 
for her benefit, basically. And he's trapped there. And I think those would probably be the two. I also, if I was just going to do a double bill for movies that would give you anxiety, I think I would probably put this with Wages of Fear. Those are good. (laughs) I think yeah. you would lose your mind after, you know, four and a half hours of watching these two movies. But yeah, I feel that. I feel like the the first two were along the waves of what I picked for mine. But Wages to Fear would also be great. Just be kind of sweating towards the end of it. I have a triple feature. Okay. And the theme would be the traps that we lay for ourselves and that society lays for us. Okay. So I would kick off with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. I would then go to Eyes Wide Shut, and then I would finish out with Woman in the Dunes. And uh, it's a triple feature about masks, the things people do under masks and the masks that we wear for each other, the pain that we inflict on each other, especially in a man and a woman relationship. Mm-hmm. What about the mask maybe not the mask <laughs> <laughs> I, I i've already shared my thoughts on the mask it's not here's the thing it's not bad but i don't see the, the love for it do you think it is it. bad well see it was an appropriate pick for that podcast That's shout true. out to, to nick's bad movies we love I kind of went the route of, even though as the movie ended, I, I felt differently about her. But as the beginning, you're kind of led to believe that she's entrapping him in a yeah. sort of way. So I kind of went with three different movies that I'll just quickly name off of women who kind of entrap men. So we got Possessed by Curtis Bernhardt from 1947's Joan Crawford, who's madly obsessed with Van Heflin in this movie. He's telling her several times, I'm not interested, and she cannot hear it. And she just, you know, possesses him. It's a very good movie. would highly recommend. Another one is Leave Her to Heaven, John M. Stahl, 1945. Mm. Dean Tierney, also obsessed with this man, and is willing to commit murder to get him. So there's that. And then the third would be Angel Face, which is Otto Preminger in 1952. It's Jane Simmons and Robert Mitchum. And she's also just very obsessed and entrapping him, getting him to work for her family so that he can, she can have him nearby. So it's just, if you're going for that route, I feel like I would start off with one of those and end with Woman in the Dunes because I feel like in the end, she's not really entrapping him. Mm. It's more so the villagers and she needs that extra hand. But if you want, that other perspective and then to give you more perspective into her mindset and with women in the dunes but it's hard to also i feel like follow up any film with women in dunes it has to be the second one you watch yeah i think it has to be at the end yeah like you can't watch women in the dunes and then you know the mask i mean maybe i could but (laughs) (laughs) do you feel like there's any connection to sunset boulevard with this movie with that relationship between um Mm -hmm. you know the main character and the butler and very much that would also be another great one to pair with just to have this woman who's clinging on to someone who doesn't want to be there but knows that this is probably the better option for them because outside of this they don't have much and this person has more to offer them despite the fact that they don't want to be there this seems to be a theme that runs in a lot of art (laughs) Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Women in the Dunes. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks. This was great. Seeing Face in the Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Moroni. Intro music by Lamar Walker. And if you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinthemovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinthemovies at gmail.com. While you're at it, please subscribe and write the show or if you listen to your podcast.